Alright, good afternoon family. Sorry to keep you waiting. Thank you so much for being here. This afternoon we want to have a Bible study together upon a topic in the Bible that is very much misunderstood, I would say, by most people in the Christian world. It's one that is very solemn in nature, that is eye-opening, but also very encouraging because in this prophecy, God removes the veil and shows us basically what the enemy is going to do in the last days, his plans and his strategies of deception. And we're going to look at that so that we, number one, won't be deceived so that we can counter his attack and so that we can, most importantly, win the victory in this battle between good and evil. So the topic is entitled, The Battle of Armageddon, The Coming of the Kings of the East and the Final Gathering of the Nations. Now this afternoon's presentation um, builds very strongly upon a solid foundation of prophecies that we've covered when we were here a month ago. And uh, so I'm assuming that we are all familiar or at least have somewhat of a foundation. Um, we're not going to have the time to prove every statement that is made. A lot of things will be assumed that we all understand based upon the studies we've had before. But in the case that we share something that you're not sure about or you need more evidence about, please let us know. And uh, you'll be, you're more than welcome to borrow the DVDs as well. And so I hope you brought your Bible, I hope you brought your notebook, and uh, we're going to pray and get into this message, and then after that we'll have a short five, ten minute break maybe, and then I'm going to present another message that is a little bit different in nature, talking about uh, faith, and um, it's entitled The Grave of an Entire Generation. And uh, so two interesting messages, and uh, I just have to say that you know, one of the reasons why I felt compelled to share this, uh, I was only going to, uh, planning, we're only planning on sharing one presentation for tonight, but this week has been a very sad week in the world. Um, over a hundred people that were killed in Kenya a few days ago, and then that plane crash with that uh, you folks heard about that, right? The pilot basically flew the plane and killed all the people on board that plane. And, and I just got to thinking, man, we live in a world where Satan is working overtime to destroy, to take innocent lives. He is filled with wrath. He knows that he has a short time, and so he's wanting to take with him all that he can in destruction. And uh, we know that God does not cause death. He doesn't cause sin and suffering. Jesus made it clear that it is an enemy that has done this. And so whenever we see the enemy working overtime and doing terrible things that bring all of us pain, it should, all, it should ought to make us homesick for heaven, number one. Number two, it should, it should make us angry at Satan. It should make us angry at the enemy. And um, that anger ought to turn us 
can compel us to want to declare war against him and his kingdom of darkness and destruction. And friends, we're no match for the enemy, but the enemy is no match for Jesus. And so the way in which we fight against Satan is basically with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, by prayer, by sharing God's Word with others. That's how we can do damage to Satan's kingdom. And that's what I want to do today. Amen. I want to do that every day. And um, so because of that, I felt I, just, I, should, I should just go ahead and preach as much as I can. Just because that's the only way I can know to do damage to his kingdom of darkness is by the word of God. And so I invite you to pray with me as we uh, prepare our hearts for the message. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, that in this battle between good and evil, you've already won the victory, and the victory is ours by faith in Christ. And Lord, you've given us your word, your prophecies, to warn us against Satan's final strategies of, dis of deception and destruction. We want to understand it, Lord, so that we're not deceived and so that we can counter the attack of the enemy. And so as we open your word, Lord, as we deal with this topic, I pray, Lord, that you give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and that you would give all of us an understanding of this message and that as darkness is exposed, that we would choose to align our lives, ourselves, with the kingdom of light. Please speak to us and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The battle of Armageddon, the coming of the kings of the east, and the final gathering of the nations. This afternoon we're going to look into the most brutal battle that has ever been fought. Words cannot describe the fierceness of this fight. This conflict is more catastrophic than World War I, World War II, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, Desert Storm, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, all of them combined can't compare with this war. The enemy is more sinister than any other enemy we've ever faced. He has captured and killed billions in this battle. And on our own, by ourselves, we don't stand the chance against this angelic aggressor. It is a fearful fight, but the good news is that God wants to teach us to fight in such a way that we will win. In Psalms 144 and verses 1 and 2, it said, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdues my people under me. This is a very beautiful, beautiful promise. God is the one that trains our hands to war and our fingers to fight. And you know how he does that? Here's how we war with our hands. Amen? And with our fingers... Here's how we, 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 we take our fingers and we open the Word of God. That's how we fight, friends. By the weapon of God's Word and prayer is how we fight 
Because this battle is not a physical battle, but it's a spiritual battle. And I want us to notice, first thing we must know, it's not a physical fight. And who is the enemy? Thank you so much, brother. It says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, For we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high or in heavenly places. And so this war is against not flesh and blood. It's not so much physical, it's spiritual. And so this evening we want to study the climax of this controversy, this spiritual war, as we discover Satan's final attempt to gather the world together to fight against God. And this war is described in the book of Revelation. So notice as we turn to Revelation, en Apocalipsis 16, book 12. that describes este the spiritual war. You see, Revelation is a symbolic and spiritual book. Es un libro it's symbolic. Simbolico. There are symbols in it. It's not Hay meant to be taken literal. And so as we go to Revelation, let's Mientras keep it in mind that it's not a physical war, but a spiritual one. No Notice, Revelation chapter 16, uh, during our seminar when I was last here, we studied about the seven last plagues. And uh, how many of you were there for that? Do you remember that? We studied the seven last plagues, and you remember how we skipped over plague number six? Plague number six deals with the battle of Armageddon. And so I made you the promise that we're going to cover it, and so I'm, I intend to keep that promise this afternoon. And so, Revelation 6, beginning with verse 12, describes the sixth vial, the sixth plague, which deals with the battle called Armageddon. Revelation 16, verse 12. And if you're there, if you're ready to study, would you please say amen? It says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river. What, what is the river called? Euphrates. And the waters thereof were, was dried up. Why? For what purpose? That the way of the kings from which direction? The east might be prepared. Verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to who? The kings of the earth and of the whole world. Why? to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And then Jesus interrupts this plague in verse 15 by giving us these words. Here's Jesus speaking, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Then 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue. What is the place called? Armageddon. And so we find in this sixth plague the waters of Euphrates drying up so that the ways of the, uh, the way of the kings of the east could be prepared. And then it describes three unclean spirits like frogs out of the mouth of the dragon, beast, and false prophet going to the king's political powers, then the whole world to gather them to this great battle that the Bible calls in Hebrew the battle of Armageddon. What is this battle called Armageddon all about? Well, friends, most people believe that it's a literal, physical, military conflict that's going to take place in the Middle East. Many and most Christians, I should say, believe that 
uh, this battle has to do with the Eastern Islamic countries who will fight against the literal nation of Israel. And people are saying that, you know, all of the things that ISIS is currently doing is a fulfillment of this prophecy. This belief that it's a physical battle or a literal war is rooted in the left-behind theology that comes directly from the Antichrist during the Council of Trent, during the time of the Counter-Reformation. We dealt with that before. Francisco Rivera was the one that invented a new school of prophetic interpretation called, do you remember what it's called? Futurism. Francisco Rivera, Francisco Rivera Jesuit priest, invented Futurism that puts everything in Revelation in the future after the rapture. The church is not going to be here, they, he says. And it's going to be fulfilled in a very literal way. And that's what most of the Christian world evangelical theology has, has bitten into. But friends, we need to ask, is this a literal battle that will take place in the Middle East? According to the context, it cannot be a literal war because everything else is symbolic. And not only because of the context, the symbolic context, but also by common sense logic. We know that it's much more than some type of literal military conflict. Because the Bible tells us in this context that frogs are coming out of the mouth of the beast, dragon, and false prophet. Now, do literal frogs come out of a literal dragon, a literal beast, and a literal false prophet? Then it also says that Euphrates must be dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, is it really necessary for a little river to dry up so that kings can pass through the river? No, friends, they can fly over the river. It's not necessary for a little river to be literally dried up. And then it says that the whole world will be gathered into this place, the Battle of Armageddon. Now, is it really possible to gather every single person in all the world into one little place there in the Middle East? Is that possible to get over 6 billion people to be gathered into that one little place? It's impossible, friends. I mean, think about it. How long would it take? How many airplanes would you need? And so common sense uh, shows us that this can't be dealing with a literal battle with the whole world literally fighting against each other in a literal place. You see, because of the false theology of futurism that the Left Behind series is built upon, many in the Christian world are looking in the wrong direction for the fulfillment of this prophecy. Obviously, it's in symbolic. The, the nature of the book of Revelation is that it's symbolic. So what exactly does this mean? Well, God gives us the clue when He tells us it's in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Did you notice that? Let's read it again, verse six, 17. Excuse me, verse 16. And He gathered them together into a place called in the what? Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So that's the clue, friends, that helps us to understand what the battle of Armageddon is all about. It's in the Hebrew tongue, and friends, in Hebrew, that's pointing us back to the Old Testament times. And if we're to look up the word Armageddon in the Hebrew language, this is what the word actually means. It comes from a, a, a combination of two words together, har and moed. 
Har meaning mount, Moed, which is the root word of Megiddon, it means congregation. So the word Armageddon in the Hebrew tongue simply means the mount of the congregation. What does it mean, everyone? So in order to understand this battle, we have to understand Armageddon, which is the mount of the congregation. In other words, friends, when the Bible tells us that, it's pointing us back to the Old Testament Hebrew, the mount of the congregation, where this war actually began. Friends, you remember we studied how Lucifer, that glorious angel, began a war in heaven against God? And friends, this war began over who would sit on the mount of the congregation. Do you know who's, whose throne is upon the mount of the congregation? The throne of God. And Lucifer, when he first began to war or rebel against God, it was because he wanted to sit on the mount of the congregation. In other words, in other words he wanted to dethrone God and he wanted to be God. Let's take a look at that as we lay the foundation for this study. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, the Bible says, talking about the fall of Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said, where did he say it? In thine heart. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. The rebellion that first began in heaven against God originated in the heart of Lucifer. For thou hast said in thine heart, what did he say? I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the what? Mount of the congregation. That's the word Armageddon, friends. I will sit upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will be like the, excuse me, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So we find, friends, that this battle was a, is a, from, the be, from the very beginning was always a spiritual battle. Lucifer did not so much physically fight against God, but he fought in a spiritual way by rebelling against God's government. You see, friends, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will. The battle between good and evil, the original Armageddon, is a battle between the will. I will versus thy will. Lucifer wanted to do his own will. He did not want to do God's will. And he said, I want to sit upon the mount of the congregation. That's where God's throne is. In other words, he wanted to dethrone God and set himself up as God. He sought to cast truth and righteousness to the ground, and he wanted to set up, set up his own standard of truth and righteousness. And thus the Bible says that there was war in heaven. This is the original Armageddon. Revelation 12, verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. Why? Because Satan wanted to be God. Now this word war in the Greek is the word polemos. What did I say? The war, that word is polemos. And it literally means, a, it means strife, a quarrel, dispute, or argument. In other words, the original Armageddon, the, the war that, that began in heaven in the heart of Lucifer was not a, a physical battle, but it was a battle or a conflict of ideas, a conflict of beliefs, and a conflict of the will. 
So it's more than physical. It's spiritual. And so, once again, the original Armageddon is a spiritual battle of beliefs. You see, God's government is based upon His perfect law of love. You remember we studied that? The foundation of God's throne is the law of God, friends. And Lucifer was the covering cherub, the one that, 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 that was right next to God, that was, that was ordained to uphold the, the law of God, the standard of righteousness. But this, this angel began to rebel against that law. And Lucifer in heaven proposed a plan to the other angels a plan based on self-government. What kind of government? In other words, he was saying, we don't need God to be righteous and holy. We can do it on our own, by our own beliefs, by our own works. He said, I want to be like the Most High, and I don't need the Most High to be like the Most High. I can be God myself. I can be holy. I can be righteous, and I can do it all on my own. His government that he was proposing was a government was, 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 was based upon self-governance. Not being governed by the holy law of love, but making ourselves a law unto ourselves. The beginning of the battle helps us to understand the conclusion of this controversy. You see, because the final Armageddon in Revelation is also a spiritual war between truth and error. It is the climax of the war that began in the heart of Lucifer. Not a physical fight, but a spiritual showdown between truth and error. And this makes sense, friends, because think about it. Who can fight against God physically? Who can fight against God physically? No one, friends. No one can fight against God physically. No one can overpower God physically. So it can't be a sim simply a physical war, but rather it's a spiritual war, a universal war that we're all involved in tonight. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Everyone, every one of us, friends, were born on a battlefield, planet Earth, battlefield. And we must choose which side we're going to be on. Will we stand on the side of truth or the, the side of error? Will I compromise with the world or will I remain faithful to God? Well, what enables us to win this war? Well, only as we understand the issues at stake in it and how we can, how God has won the victory for us. And so I want you to notice as we take a little bit uh, closer look so that we can understand the symbolic details of this battle, the battle of Armageddon is the, in the context of the sixth plague. And in the sixth plague, we find symbols used to help us understand it. And I want you to notice as we zero in now on verse 12, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And what happened? The waters thereof were dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be Prepared. Now, what does this mean? Well, friends, do you remember we studied that the book of Revelation is built upon the broad foundation of the what? The Old Testament Scriptures. There are 404 verses in Revelation. Over 274 of those verses are quoting from the Old Testament. In other words, the only way to accurately understand Revelation is if we get the Old Testament context. And so this verse, Revelation 16, 12, 
that describes the drying up of Euphrates so that the kings of the east could come is actually pointing us back to the kingdom of Babylon. Because friends, do you remember that the kingdom of Babylon was built on top of the river Euphrates? The river Euphrates ran diagonally through the kingdom of Babylon. And that river was very significant. It was the lifeline of the Babylonian kingdom. It provided water for the crops of Babylon, so much so that the Babylonians, history tells us, had a 20-year food supply. And it was because of that river. They were able to uh, sustain themselves from the attacks and besiegements of the enemy and the protection from the enemies. Uh, the, the, uh, excuse me, the river would offer protection for them from their enemies who would seek to breach the walls of Babylon. And friends, we remember that this kingdom ceased and it was overcome. Why? Do you remember how Babylon fell? Because the water of Euphrates ran dry. Do you remember that? But how? Let's review. In Daniel chapter 5, we find Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, partying. And in this party, he makes a dangerous mistake. What does he do? He tells his servants, bring me the golden cups that, that, he, that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar got from the house of the Lord. The sacred holy cups used in the Lord's service. He said, bring me those cups. Why? So that he could drink his old wine of Babylon in those sacred cups. He's mixing the sacred and the profane together. And when he did that, that was the last straw that broke the camel's back. When he mixed the holy with the unholy, on that very night, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But how? On the outside of the walls, during the party, the armies of the Medes and Persians were surrounded. But they could not breach the walls. They were trying to find a way to penetrate the massive walls in the fortified city of Babylon. Cyrus and Darius were the kings. And remember how they got in. Cyrus marched his army about a mile up the river Euphrates, and they began to dig trenches to divert the water into open fields, causing the water of Euphrates to drop significantly so that he could march his army through the riverbed into the walls to overcome Babylon. You see, Cyrus and Darius are the kings of the east. That's where they came from. They are the, ki the literal kings of the east. So the water of the river Euphrates dries up so that the kings of the east could pass and Babylon could be destroyed. Are you with me? So in Revelation 16, when it talks about Euphrates being dried for the kings of the east, east it's pointing us back to this story which is the foundational context to help us understand how this is going to be repeated in the last days in a spiritual sense with spiritual mystical Babylon in Revelation are you with me yes or no and I want you to notice what the Bible tells us concerning Cyrus and Darius who are the kings of the east notice what the Bible calls them Isaiah 44, verse 27, because we're going to find out who the kings of the east are. They're Cyrus and Darius, but I want to, we're going to see what they represent. Isaiah 44, 27, write it down. That says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. What river? 
the river Euphrates. That saith to Cyrus, he is my, what is Cyrus called? The shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. That's like saying Cyrus, in whom I'm well pleased. He'll perform, he is the shepherd and I'm well pleased. He will perform all my pleasure. Then notice chapter 45 and verse 1. That said to the Lord to his, what is, what, what is this word? Anointed to Cyrus. So Cyrus is called anointed. Friends, do you know what another word for the anointed one is? Messiah. So Cyrus is called the anointed shepherd that does God's pleasure. And friends, who is the true anointed shepherd that pleases God in all things? It's Christ. So Cyrus is a type of Christ that comes to overcome and set us free from spiritual Babylon. It says, whose right hand I've held to subdue nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And so, friends, Cyrus specifically is called the anointed shepherd that does the pleasure of God. Cyrus and Darius, these are the literal kings that come from the east, that, that pass through the dried up uh, river Euphrates that caused Babylon to fall. And friends, listen, what happened way back then, way back then, is a symbol of how end time Babylon is going to fall during the time of the seven last plagues. Friends, you remember we studied Babylon? This woman that's riding upon a beast that is sitting upon the many waters of the river Euphrates. You remember we said that? Revelation 17 represents a church that is riding a beast or a, what does the beast represent? A kingdom. And this kingdom is sitting upon many waters, the river Euphrates, which represents multitudes of people. Friends, it represents the papacy, not the people, but the system itself. That's Babylon, friends. That's Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's the Roman church state system. A woman upon a seven-headed beast that's upon many waters. And friends, the Vatican City is a church sitting upon a city of seven hills, seven-headed beasts that is supported by many waters or many peoples all over the world. And so it's this system that the Bible describes in Revelation, Babylon, that's going to fall. It's going to fall hard. And friends, why? Because she made all nations drink of the what? Wine of the wrath of her fornication. The same way literal Babylon fell because they drunk old intoxicating wine in the sacred cups of the Lord, just like Old Testament Babylon fell like that, so too mystical New Testament Babylon in Revelation falls for the same reason, because they mix the sacred and the profane together, and that wine has caused millions, even billions of people to become spiritually drunk and intoxicated, confused with the wine of her false doctrine. And so, it's the spirit of Lucifer, by the way. The spirit of the Lucifer that says, we can be holy without God's law. Remember, that's what Lucifer said? He had a problem with God's throne and God's law. He said, I will be like the Most High, and the Most High is holy. In other words, I can be holy all by myself. I don't need the law to tell me how to do it. And so, too, the, 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 this, this New Testament Babylon, 
teaches the same thing that you can be holy and you don't, have, you don't need God's law in order to do it. Just drink the wine and you can be holy. It's the doctrine of transubstantiation. It teaches as long as you drink the wine, which is, they say, the literal blood of Jesus, you are cleansed from all your sin and you can be holy. In other words, the teachings of this church says, we don't need the law, all we need is the wine. It's the spirit of Lucifer, friends. And this wine brings confusion. And that's what leads mystical Babylon to fall. And they fall hard. You know why? Well, what led ancient Babylon to fall? What was it again? It was the drying up of the river Euphrates that prepared the way for Cyrus and Darius, the kings of the east, east to penetrate and to conquer Babylon. And so, uh, in order for New Testament Babylon to fall, the waters of Euphrates need to dry up as well. And so, what do those waters represent? Revelation 17, 15. The waters which you saw where the whore sits are what? What are they? Peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So Babylon is going to fall and it's going to fall hard when the water is dried up. When the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, when they leave Babylon, Babylon is going to fall. Now friends, listen carefully. People are going to leave Babylon. The waters will dry up in two ways. How many ways? Number one, the first way in which the waters of Babylon, the Roman church state system, is going to dry up is when the gospel is preached and people will come out of Babylon. And they're going to come out when they hear the gospel. Remember in Revelation 18, the Bible says, come out of her, my people. And if the people represents waters, the waters coming out represents the waters drying up. And so the river is going to dry up and thus the, 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 the strength and the power of Babylon will be removed as people exit Babylon. They're going to, it's going to be a mass exodus. Because friends, just as Old Testament Babylon captured the people of God and held them in captivity, so too New Testament Babylon is holding millions of people in spiritual captivity by their false doctrine. And so, when those people who are in, the, in captivity to spiritual Babylon hear the truth, the gospel pro proclaimed, they're going to follow the truth, and they're going to be delivered from Babylonian captivity. They're going to come out, and they're going to go to spiritual Jerusalem, God's faithful remnant church. Are you with me, yes or no? Are you sure? And so whenever the gospel is preached and someone responds to it, that's another drop exiting Babylon. And friends, I want you to consider every now and then when a person is baptized and becomes a follower of truth, a drop comes out of Babylon. But when you think about water drying up, water evaporating, water doesn't evaporate by gallons. It evaporates by drops. Isn't that right? You know what the lesson is? Many times we're waiting for the water to dry up by gallons. We're waiting for our family members to come out, then we'll come out with them. We're waiting for all our friends to, to, to follow the truth before we will start following the truth. But friends, water doesn't evaporate by gallons. It evaporates drop 
by drop. In other words, as individual drops, as individuals, we must make a decision for ourselves. Amen? And so that's the first way the water is going to dry up when the gospel is presented. The second way the water is going to dry up is when the seven last plagues are poured out upon Babylon and people realize that this is not a place God wanted them to be and they're going to come out but they're going to come out when it's too late. Multitudes of deceived people are going to withdraw their support from this system, but they're going to do it when it's too late, friends. It's too late. And so we must do it when it's not too late. When we hear the gospel and the truth is clear, we must, by the grace of God, come out. Amen? And by the way, you may be physically out of Babylon, but God wants to remove Babylon out of you. And so let's remember the, the, the personal application. It's not just literally coming out of the, the uh, uh, fallen churches of the world. It's letting God take the spirit of Babylon out of our own hearts. You know what the spirit of Babylon is? The system of Babylon is the papacy. But the spirit of Babylon says, I can be holy and righteous all on my own. I can do it by myself. I'm a good person. And I can become righteous by my own works. That's the spirit of Babylon. So let's get out of Babylon and let's God take Babylon out of us. Amen? Now, friends, as the water dries up, now the kings of the east can come. The water had to dry up before the kings of the east could come. And as it's dried up, now the kings of the east can come. Friends, do you know who the kings of the east are? Who are the literal kings of the east? The literal kings of the east in the Old Testament. Cyrus and Darius. And what was Cyrus called? The anointed shepherd that does the pleasure of God, in whom God is well pleased. Friends, the kings of the east are none other than Jesus Christ, the true shepherd, the true Messiah, and the Holy Spirit. And so now as the waters are dried up, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the kings of the east, can return the second time. That's what it's referring to, friends. In Matthew 27, verse uh, 24 verse 27 it says for as the lightning sh comes from the which direction the east and shines in the west so shall also the coming of the son of man be Jesus is coming from the east and then it says in the book of Ezekiel 43 verse 2 and behold the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the which direction the east and his voice was like the voice of many waters and the earth shined with his glory so the kings of the east that destroy Babylon to set God's people free from Babylonian captivity represents Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming the second time to set God's spiritual Israelites free from the captivity of planet Babylon or spiritual Babylon at the end of time. And friends, when the kings of the east, just like Cyrus and Darius, allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and temple, so too when Jesus comes, we're going to go back to the new Jerusalem. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Does this make sense? Friends, do you see that, that those who are trapped by this left behind secret rapture theology have completely missed the spiritual significance of the book of Revelation? They're reading it with literal eyes and they're missing out on the deep significance. You see, it was the literal mindedness of the Jews 
that caused them to crucify their Messiah. And unfortunately, many Christians, because of their little-mindedness, are doing the exact same thing to truth today. They're crucifying truth because they're thinking for, they're looking for a literal people, a literal temple, a literal battle in a literal place in the Middle East. But it's spiritual, friends. That's the nature of the book of Revelation. And so, Babylon is fallen when the waters are dried up, when people come out. And when that happens, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the kings of the east, will return. But here's the thing, friends. Before this grand and glorious end, Satan is going to launch a final threefold attack on God's truth and God's people. It's not a physical, but it's a spiritual attack of deception. And I want you to notice what he, what he does. That, now we go to the next verse, verse 13. We just studied verse 12. And how many of you understand verse 12 now? You understand verse 12? All right, now let's go to the next verse, verse 13. Before the kings of the east return, before Jesus comes back, here's what Satan is going to do, friends. A threefold attack against the people and the truth of God. Verse 13 of Revelation 16. And I saw three unclean spirits. Like what? Frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of what? Devils. And what do they do? It says they work miracles. Then notice, which go forth unto who? The kings of the earth. And then who do they go to? And of the whole world. To gather them, that is the whole world, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Friends, I want you to, to notice that there is a progression of unity that leads to an all-out aggressive attack against God's truth and God's people. And here's the progression of unity. I want you to keep this in mind. The unity first is between the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These unclean spirits, they're going to unify with each other first. And when this unity is accomplished, when these three powers, and by the way, this is the unholy trinity of Revelation. This is a counterfeit of God himself. Our God is a, the, the Godhead is a trinity, friends. It's the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And friends, the dragon, beast, and false prophet is the counterfeit of God. It's the unholy trinity. The dragon is a counterfeit of the Father. The beast is a counterfeit of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the false prophet that testifies to the beast is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit that testifies to Jesus. It is the unholy unity of Satan. And so they unite together first, and then they go to the kings of the earth. What are kings? Civil powers. Because they need political muscle to enforce their doctrines and their deceptions. And once they have the backing of the political powers and nations of the world, then they go to the whole world. And as a result of this progression of unity, it will lead to an all-out attack against God's truth and against God's holy law and His holy people. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen. And friends, we're going to see right now that we, this is happening before our very eyes, which shows us something very 
how shall I say it? Very disturbing. That is what Satan is doing. But it's also something that gives us hope to know that, hey, the kings of the east are about to return. Amen? Because this is going to happen just before the kings of the east, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, come back to take us to the new Jerusalem. And so, when you see these things take place, Jesus said, look up. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. We need to look around to see it happening, but then after that, look up. The kings of the east are soon to come. And so now the next question is this. Who is the dragon? Who is the beast? And who is the false prophet? And how are they uniting together? And then once we identify the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, there we're going to see clearly that they're, right now they're going to the political powers of the world, and many countries of the world are backing this unity up. It's just a matter of time before the whole world goes along with it. So now notice, who is the dragon? Are you ready? We know that the dragon is Satan. But notice specifically who Satan uses or what the dragon power of Satan is. Here's the dragon power. We Everything, it's, it's all of Satan. But what is the dragon power of Satan? Notice, Revelation 12 verse 9 tells us, and the great dragon was cast out, that, what is he called? Old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which does what? Deceives how much of the world? So friends, the Bible tells us that the dragon is Satan, but he's called the old serpent, which deceives the whole world. In other words, the dragon is the serpent of old. Now, tell me, when did the serpent of old deceive the whole world? The Garden of Eden. In deceiving Adam and Eve, he deceived the whole world. And so the dragon is basically, the, the, is basically whatever the serpent said, that tells us what the dragon power is. And so notice what the dragon did through the serpent. Genesis 3 verse 1. He said to our first mother, Yea, hath God said... Stop right there. What is he doing? He's doubting the word of God. This is the origin of higher criticism concerning the word of God. Has God said, causing doubt concerning God's word, has God said, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Then notice, verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not, what? In other words, Eve, sin does not bring death. God is lying. He's not telling the truth. You're not going to die when you sin. There's no such thing as death in sin. You won't surely die, for God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as you shall be God. Isn't that what Lucifer wanted for himself? And so now he's saying, you can have it too. And how do you have it? Eat of the fruit. Sin 
Break God's law. If you do, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. In other words, death is simply one phase of existence to a much higher exalted state of existence. You may die physically, but you won't surely die. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the doctrine of spiritualism. The doctrine that teaches us that we are immortal and we can be God. There is no death in sin. The origin of spiritualism, which is the foundation of every pagan religion. I need another battery just in case. All right, thank you, brother. Oh, I'm about to die pretty soon. You shall not surely die, right? <laughs> So this is the foundation of every pagan religion, friends. Every false religion, its foundational teaching is that you can break God's law and still be immortal. In fact, we read this before, but notice what one spiritualist said. The fundamental principle of spiritism is that human beings survive bodily death and that occasionally under conditions not yet fully understood, we can communicate with those who have gone before. And so, friends, the dragon is the serpent of old. And what was the doctrine of the serpent of old? It was spiritualism, friends, which is the foundation of paganism. And they basically teach that the spirit world is the real world. The physical is the, is the fake world. Your body dies, but you don't really die because you are not your body. The soul lives on in consciousness. And, and this is the foundational belief of Buddhism, Confucius, Confucianism, Hinduism, Taoism, Shintoism, Sikhism, Rastafarianism, Hare Krishna, they all believe in reincarnation, that, that the body dies but the soul lives on in consciousness. You're reincarnated, your eyes are going to be open, and the better you are, uh, the, the, the more righteous you are in your own works, you go up in the, in the, the levels of, of, of karma, and you can, in fact, reach nirvana, where you are just like God, free from a physical body, and you can be God. This is the foundation of every pagan and false religion, and that is the power of the dragon, friends. Islam believes it too, because Islam teaches that there is consciousness in death. Though if you die in jihad, you go to paradise. All of these false religions are founded upon the sophistries of the serpent when he said, you won't surely die, but you'll be like God. The new age is simply the old lie of the enemy. Deceiving people to believe that they are God, or they can be God by their own good works. And so, friends, who is the dragon? The dragon is Satan, but specifically, it represents paganism and spiritualism. That's what the dragon is. It represents all pagan religions that teach the doctrines of spiritualism. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Because that's what the dragon is. He's the old serpent that deceives the world. How did it, how did it, what is his deception? You can break God's law and still live forever. That's the doctrine of spiritualism and paganism. And so, friends, listen carefully. Listen. All false religions are already united under the dragon power. Do you realize that? Islam is very different than, than uh, Hinduism, but they're united in this deception. 
They're united under the deception of the dragon. It says that your, your soul is immortal. And so we see that the dragon is spiritualism and paganism. But then notice what the dragon does. Who's the dragon a counterfeit of? Do you remember we, we said? The dragon is a counterfeit of God, the Father. And notice what the dragon does. Revelation 13, 2. And the dragon gave him, that's the beast, his power, seat, and great authority. So notice, friends, the dragon representing paganism and spiritualism empowers the beast to live and to have authority. The same way the Father empowered the Son Jesus at his baptism to begin his three and a half years of public ministry, so too the dragon Satan empowers the Antichrist beast by giving him life and authority to to live and act during his three and a half prophetic years reign. You remember that? Three and a half years? Prophetic years? That's 1260 prophetic days or 1260 literal years. In other words, the exact same time Jesus' ministry was, literally, was the exact same time the beast's ministry was, spiritually. Do you see the parallel? Yes or no? All right. And so the dragon, who's the dragon again? spiritualism and paganism gives power to the antichrist beast now who is the antichrist beast we've had several presentations on it so I'm, I'm just going to tell you what it is understand or, or with the understanding that you already heard it right and if you haven't heard it what you're about to hear is shocking but we can prove this from the bible in history and please give us the opportunity and by the way, remember, we're not talking about individuals. God so loved the... He loves every single human being. Amen. We're not talking about people individually. We're talking about systems, theologies, ideas, and institutions. Now, there may be people in these institutions that are deceived, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they're automatically lost because God judges us based upon the knowledge and the light we have. And many people in the systems of uh, 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 under the dragon pagan systems like Buddhism and Islam as well as the beast system um, many of them are sincere and they believe they're doing the right thing and God will judge them accordingly and so the beast we learn very clearly is none other than the Roman church state system friends it's the papacy it's papal Rome the antichrist the one that sits in the place of Christ on earth now friends think about it it makes sense the beast is a continuation of the dragon, right? Because the dragon gave the beast its power, seed, and authority. And just as the beast is a continuation of the dragon, so too papal Rome, the beast, is a continuation of pagan Rome because pagan Rome was a pagan kingdom that taught the teachings of spiritualism from the serpent of old. And so, Papal Rome is a continuation of pagan Rome. The dragon transferred all their power and authority to the beast, the Roman church state system. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? And by the way, friends, the dragon and the beast have always been together from the very beginning. They've always been united because the dragon is the one that gave power to the beast. And the beast, because of that, has always remained faithful to the dragon's teachings 
of spiritualism that says you shall not surely die. And so now I want you to notice the next question. Does the papacy believe and teach the dragon's doctrines of spiritualism? Does the papacy, the Roman church state system, believe and teach in spiritualism? Do they, do they teach that your body dies but your soul lives on in consciousness? Yes or no? Of course. We see it when they pray to saints as if those saints who have passed away are alive and can hear. The doctrine of purgatory is really founded upon the, uh, on what the serpent said. You won't surely die. The apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Believing that this is really Mary, it's the doctrine of spiritualism, friends. In fact, I want you to notice what one famous Catholic father has been teaching in Christendom around the world today. His name is Father Thomas Keating. You might want to write that down. You can look it up for yourself. Father Thomas Keating is a monk and priest of the papacy. And he is one of the architects of what is called centering prayer or contemplative prayer. And basically, let me explain it, and I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you hear from his own words in just a moment. But basically, he says that, or he's the one, the, one of the originators that began to propagate and teach it. He's the architect of centering prayer, contemplative method of prayer, a, a movement that is rapidly sweeping across the Christian world today. But this type of spirituality is modern after the transcendental meditation of occultic mysticism. It's, it's the practice of emptying the mind of everything to get in touch with the Christ consciousness within. Basically, he is repeating what the, exactly what the serpent said with to Father Eve. Thomas Keating. Now, he's probably... He's basically repeating what the serpent said to Eve in the Garden of Eden, that you won't surely die, but you shall be as gods. And I want you to notice what he says in his own words. Are you ready? With Father Thomas Keating. Now, he's probably the most revered figure in the Christian contemplative movement today. Summarizes the journey this way. The beginning of the spiritual journey is, is the realization, not just the information, but a real interior conviction that there is a higher power or God or to make it as easy as possible for everybody that there is an other capital O second step to try to become the other still a capital O and finally the realization that there is no other. You and the other are one. Always have been, always will be. You just think that you aren't. Did you catch that? So he's basically summarizing what he says is the Christian journey. This is what he propagates in all the world. It's become famous in many churches, even Protestant churches today. And so let me just repeat what he said. He said, the Christian journey is summarized in three steps. How many? Number one, that there is God, or as he said, an other with a capital O. Second step, try to become one with the other 
capital O. Then the third step, you realize that there is no other, that you are the other. Isn't that exactly what the serpent said? You shall be as God. That's what Hinduism teaches. That's what every false doctrine in pagan religion teaches about the Christ consciousness within. And if, as we empty our mind through contemplative prayer, that we can get in touch with that Christ consciousness within and we'll realize that we are God. And isn't that what Lucifer wanted in the beginning? He said, we can be God and we don't need God to be God. Do you see it? And so the beast is definitely connected with the dragon. The dragon and the beast have a strong unity. And that union has remained strong from the beginning. And these two powers, the beast and the dragon, which is Catholicism and spiritualism, are you going to unite their powers together with the third component, which is the false prophet. Now, who is the false prophet? Well, listen, friends, the false prophet is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Counterfeit of what? Just as the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus and points us to Jesus, the false prophet is the one that points people to the beast, the Antichrist kingdom. And so, who is the false prophet? Well, friends, listen. The false prophet is only mentioned three times in the book of Revelation, so there's very little that is said about the false prophet. But what is said about the false prophet is enough for us to understand the exact identity of the false prophet. The false prophet is always mentioned in connection with the beast. In other words, the false prophet and the beast are buddies. I mean, they're always together every time they're mentioned in Revelation. And I want you to notice one of those times. In Revelation 19, verses 19 through 20, it gives us the characteristics of the false prophet. Notice carefully with me. Revelation 19, 19 and 20. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make what? to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So once again, that's, that's the beast fighting against Jesus, the one that comes on a white horse. But then notice, and the beast was taken, and with him the who? The false prophet. Now notice the characteristics of the false prophet. That wrought what? Miracles before him. Before who? Before the beast. The false prophet works miracles before the beast. With which he does what? Deceive them that had received the mark of the beast and them that did what? Worship his image or the image of the beast. So notice, friends, there are three identifying characteristics of the false prophet. Number one, he works miracles before the beast. Number two, he deceives people to receive a mark of the beast by those miracles. And number three, he makes an image to the beast. That's about the extent of what the Bible tells us concerning the false prophet. But that's enough to know who it is. Because we see these exact same characteristics applied to another beast in Revelation chapter 13. And so I invite you to turn to Revelation 13 very quickly as we find out who else in Revelation has these characteristics. Remember we studied before Revelation 13? And there's two beasts in Revelation 13. The beast that rises from the sea 
That's the papacy. And then the beast that rises from the earth. And friends, this beast that rises from the earth has the exact same characteristics as the false prophet. Notice with me. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11 and through 14. Notice what it says. And remember the three characteristics. Let me go back so that we can see it and refer to it. The three characteristics. Let's see if we can see it here. Revelation 13 and verse, what verse did I say? Verse 11. It says, And I beheld, and lo uh, excuse me. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Notice what he does. Verse 12. And he exercises all the power of the first beast that were before him, and he causes the earth and them that dwell, in, dwell therein to do what? Worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders. So that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And by the way, do you remember what happened before in the Old Testament when there was someone that caught fire down from heaven? Who was the person that caught fire down from heaven? Elijah, you remember that? And that great miracle wrought about a revival. This beast does the same thing. Why? Because he's going to bring about a false revival with strange fire in the last days. So this is the counterfeit of the great revival that God used Elijah. Who? Elijah. To keep that in mind, friends. Elijah was the one that caught fire down from heaven. And through that, the true God was made known. This beast calls down strange fire, false fire, and deceives people by it. Notice, it says, verse 14, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an what? Image to the beast, which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give light to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that as many as would not do what? Worship the image of the beast should be killed. So tell me, friends, does this earth beast have the same, the same characteristics of the false prophet? Yes or no? works miracles before the beast, deceives people to receive the mark of the beast by those miracles, and encourages the world to make an image to the beast. Here's the thing, friends. What does the beast represent in prophecy? A kingdom. And we don't have the time to prove this. I have a whole presentation on it, but this earth beast in Revelation 13, guess which kingdom or nation it is? It's the United States of America. We don't have the time to prove that, unfortunately. I'm assuming that you're familiar with it. It's the United States of America. That's the second beast. But here's the thing, friends. The false prophet is not the United States of America because the false prophet is a religious power. So the false prophet is basically the religious entity in the United States of America that preaches false things and performs false signs, wonders, and miracles. In other words, who is the false prophet? It is none other than apostate Protestantism in the United States of America. Protestants who are no longer protesting. That's who the false prophet is. Individuals who instead of protesting against the errors of the beast, they're actually coming back to the beast, uniting with the Roman church state system. Apostate Protestantism in 
the United States of America. Now, here's the next question. Has the false prophet or apostate Protestantism, have they embraced the teachings of the dragon that is spiritualism? Have many Christian evangelical Protestant churches of the world today, especially in the United States, have they embraced the teaching that when you die, you don't really die, but your soul is immortal? Yes. Most Christians believe that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. If that's true, your soul is immortal. But even more startling is that many churches today are embracing the teachings of mysticism in this emerging church movement. You heard of the emerging church before? It's not one church, but it's a movement that is sweeping across many Protestant churches. And basically here, we don't have, we're not going to get into it tonight, but here's the basic tenant or philosophy or foundational teaching of the emergent church movement. And here's this. That is, God reveals Himself, not so much through the objective Word of God, but rather by a subjective personal experience. The emergent church basically says, and it exalts a subjective personal experience that you have with God, it exalts that above the Word of God. And so, if you have an experience with God that's different from the Word, your experience is real and the Word is outdated. It's basically putting aside doctrine for the Spirit, laying aside truth and uniting in the Spirit. But friends, you can never separate the Spirit from truth because Jesus said that the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And so we don't have the time to get into it, but I want you to write this down and watch this on YouTube sometime this week. The real roots of the emergent church. Just, just search this on YouTube. The real roots of the emergent church. It wasn't put out by our church, but it was put out by a, a group of uh, evangelicals, I think, or Protestants that, that trace the history of where this teaching actually came from and what the emergent church is really rooted in, and it's rooted right back to paganism and spiritualism, and many churches are accepting it. And let me tell you, friends, it's even creeping into the remnant church where people even within our church are saying, let's put aside doctrines and let's just talk about Jesus. And friends, the implication in that statement is that doctrine is not about Jesus. But friends, all the doctrines come from Jesus. It is the teachings of Jesus. And we can never separate Jesus from his own words and his own teachings. Can you say amen? Now I want you to notice as we step back a little bit, let me give you the evidence of how spiritualism is creeping within Protestantism and Christianity today. Evidence that the dragon and the false prophet are already united. You guys know who this is, right? Claiming to be a Protestant. Notice what Oprah said. The new spirituality, they call it new, but really it's the old lie of the serpent in the, in, in the Garden of Eden. But they say the new spirituality is that you are your own best authority as you work to know and love God yourself not God yourself you discover how to live a more spiritual life does that sound exactly like what the serpent said doesn't it love yourself 
know yourself. You are your own best authority. The serpent said, you shall be as God. <laughs> and that's what a, 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 a Christian uh, 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 is, is saying that it's the new spirituality. The dragon and the false prophet are united. Now, is Catholicism and Protestantism coming together? That is, is the beast and the false prophet united? We know that the dragon and the false prophet are united, but what about the beast, Catholicism, and the false prophet, apostate Protestantism? Notice what the most famous Protestant preacher said, Billy Graham. Talking about Pope John Paul II, no other man in the world today could attract as much attention on moral and spiritual, spiritual subjects as John Paul II. The country is responding in a magnificent way, he says. The Pope has reached millions of Protestants. The beast, the false prophet, coming together. And then uh, the other most famous uh, evangelical or Protestant uh, preacher, Rick Warren. Notice what he said. When the new pope was elected a few years ago. Rick Warren, who people called the next Billy Graham. He is the most influential evangelical preacher in the world today. Rick Warren, he gave a warm welcome and he tweeted this when the new pope was elected. Join me today in fasting and prayer for the 150 cardinals seeking God's will in a new leader. Praying for God's will for a new leader. Friends, the implication in that subtle statement is that it's God's will for there to be a pope. But this is not God's will. For man to claim to be God on earth is not God's will. But he said that it's God's will. And then welcome Pope Francis, Cardinal. Uh, and then there's the hashtag in Latin, Habemus Papam, you have our prayers. Habemus Papam means we have a pope. And so we find something interesting that an evangelical leader, which is the next Billy Graham, is lending his influence to the beast, the papacy. This rhetoric comes from an ecumenical agenda. The most influential evangelical is lending his influence to it. In other words, what we're seeing is simple, friends. Protestants are no longer protesting, but they're going back to the beast. All roads lead to Rome. I want you to notice what this says. By uh, 1977, John Scott, advisor to the World Council of Churches, said, the visible unity of all professing Christians should be our goal, and that evangelicals should join others in the church, which church? The Church of England, the Anglican Church, in working toward full communion with the Catholic Church. In other words, back in 1977, their goal, the, 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 the alliance of the churches was an ecumenical unity where all the churches, Protestants, are coming back to full communion with the papacy. False prophet uniting with the beast. And friends, many of you saw this. Bishop Tony Palmer of the Anglican Church, isn't that what the quote just said? The Church of England? He is a charismatic Anglican, or he was, he passed away, he got into an accident. But he in, when, when did this happen? Not too long ago, I think it was last year, 2014. Uh, he was invited to speak at a great convocation of evangelical leaders in Kenneth Copeland's ministry, and a bunch of thought leaders were there, and in this meeting, I want you to notice what he said. 
I believe that God has brought me here to this year's Minister's Conference in the spirit of Elijah. Spirit of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the sons to the fathers. And I've understood that the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of reconciliation. To return hearts to each other. We know that the first thousand years there was one church, it was called the Catholic Church. And the word Catholic means universal, it doesn't mean Roman. Catholic means, if you're born again, raise your hand if you're born again. You're a Catholic. <laughs> Take back, redeem what belongs to you. We are Catholics. True. The glory that the Father had, he gave to Jesus. The glory was the presence of God. What is the charismatic renewal? It's when we experience the presence of God. And he said, and I give them the glory pragmatic reason, so that they may be one. It's the glory that glues us together, not the doctrines. If you accept that Christ is living in me, and the presence of God is in me, and the presence of God is in you, that's all we need. Because God will sort out all our doctrines when we get upstairs. Because in 1999, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Lutheran Church signed an agreement that brought an end to the protest. In 1999, this was signed by the Lutheran Church, the Federation Worldwide. Later, about five years later, the Worldwide Methodists signed the same agreement, but as of today, we still have had no Protestant evangelical that will stand up and sign this agreement to agree with our brothers and sisters. And I believe that's something that needs to be fixed. Brothers and sisters, Luther's protest is over. Is yours. So the protest has been over for 15 years. If there is no more protest, how can there be a Protestant church? Maybe we now we're all Catholics again. <laughs> the protest is over. The protest is over. We need to throw as much resources and energy into the ministry of reconciliation as we do to the ministry of evangelization? Or are we building walls without foundations? Sounds nice. But if you know prophecy, this is a direct fulfillment of it, friends. Let me just highlight some of the things he said. He came in the spirit of Elijah. You remember who was the one that called fire down from heaven? Elijah. And what happened as a result of that fire from heaven? A great revival took place. And friends, the false prophet does the same thing. But it's a strange fire, a counterfeit fire that leads to a counterfeit revival amongst the evangelical Christian churches of the world that leads to a unholy unity, friends. The spirit of reconciliation, the, 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 the false prophet and the beast want to unite. It is the glory that glues us together, not the doctrines. In other words, let's come together in spirit, but not truth. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. Let's put aside the truth for the sake of the spirit. And that's dangerous, friends. It is the presence of God in me and the presence of God in you, exalting a subjective personal experience above the objective Word of God. He's basically saying, we don't need the Word of God. All we need is the presence. But friends, there's a counterfeit presence as well. 
and any counterfeit presence that rejects or contradicts the Word of God must be rejected as a deception, friends. But that's what they're uniting under, this charismatic movement, speaking in tongues, and they call it the glory of God. But friends, according to the Bible, it cannot be. And then it says, the, uh, he, once again, in 1999, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Lutheran Church signed an agreement in, bringing an end to the protest. In other words, it was all a big misunderstanding. And if there's no more protest, then how can there be a Protestant church? Maybe now we're all Catholics again. Do you see the false prophet is not protesting anymore, but the false prophet, apostate Protestantism, is now testifying towards the beast. Just as the Holy Spirit Test points us to Jesus. Now the false prophet, apostate Protestantism, is pointing us back to the Catholic Church. And then it says, uh, we need to have a ministry of reconciliation. He was appealing for reconciliation with Rome. And then right after that, you remember, right, right after he gave this speech to this large evangelical gathering, he then prayed this, uh, played this video clip of the Pope. Mio fratello. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to let you look this up on YouTube and watch it for yourself. But let me just read what the Pope said in this direct appeal to these evangelical leaders. Here's what the Pope said. We are kind of, permit me to say, separated. Separated because of its sin that has separated us. All our sins. The misunderstandings throughout history, he's calling the Protestant Reformation a misunderstanding. But it wasn't a misunderstanding, friends. I am nostalgic, yearning, that this separation comes to an end and gives us what? Communion. That's a very charged word. Communion. And then he says, Let us pray that the Lord will unite us all. Come on, we are brothers. Let's give each other a spiritual hug and let God complete the work that He has begun. And this is a miracle. The miracle of unity has begun. He will complete this miracle of unity. Now, this sounds good, friends, to the one that does not know Bible prophecy. But for the one that knows it and understands it, it ought to alarm us, friends. This prophecy is being fulfilled, but don't be afraid. The kings of the East are soon to come. And after this video clip was played, here was the response of the evangelical leaders in that crowd. Here's how they responded to this appeal, this personal appeal of the Pope. His request. We come together in the unity of our faith. Hallelujah. So, Father, we just, all of us now, according to Scripture, when we know not how to pray as we ought, we pray for Him in the Spirit. We receive utterance in the Holy Ghost. We receive words that are not our own. And then responding with this video to the Pope. Thank you so from the bottom of our hearts. All of these leaders represent literally tens of thousands of people that love you, that believe God with you, and in answer to your request, we have just prayed for you and with you, and we did so in the, in spirit. the spirit. Thank you, sir. We do bless you. 
We receive your blessing. It's very, very important to us. We thank God for you. And so, all of us declare together, be blessed. Once again, all together, be blessed. Amen. 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 Now, friends, let us be quick to remember that many of God's people are there that are sincere. Amen? And they believe that they're doing the right thing. So we're not standing upon judgment, and we should never stand upon judgment upon anyone's personal walk with God. God is the only one that knows the heart. And in showing these things, we're not judging people, friends, individuals, that is. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the fruit and seeing if it fits with the root of the Word of God. And friends, the fruit is not the same as the root. It's a different experience than what the Bible teaches. And so we see, friends, that the false prophet and the beast are coming together like never before. Then after that, they all had a meeting together. And I want you to notice what this brother said. Dr. Jeff Tunaclick, who is the Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance. Here's what he said after the meeting, the private meeting with the Pope. I think Pope Francis reaching out to evangelicals bodes well for future conversations because that will allow us to go deeper in our interactions together. And so once again, it's happening before our eyes. And then just a few months ago, January 25th, 2015, an ecumenical prayer service held at the Vatican. The Pope gave the speech upon a throne sitting between two angels. You see the angels? And friends, do you remember who sits between the two covering cherubs in the most holy place? God, friends. The Ark of the Covenant between the two angels was the Shekinah glory. So he is speaking between these angels, speaking as God. And I want you to notice what he said in that ecumenical prayer service. So many past controversies between Christians can be overcome when we put aside all polemical or apologetic approaches and seek instead to grasp more fully what unites us. In other, in other words, let's put aside the doctrines. <laughs> let's just come together in what unites us. And what is that? Spiritualism, the dragon's doctrine. Christian unity, we are convinced, will not be the fruit of subtle theoretical discourses in which each party tries to convince the other of the soundness of their opinions. In other words, let's stop talking about theology. We're not going to convince one another. In other words, it's, let's put it aside. In the call to be evangelizers, all the churches and ecclesial communities discover a privileged setting for closer cooperation. For this to be effective, we need to stop being self-enclosed, exclusive, and bent on imposing a uniformity based on merely human calculations. And that's true, but we ought to do it based upon the Word of God. 
not human calculations, of course. But you see, friends, we believe in the Bible, not human calculations. What we, need, what we teach is not opinions, not theories of men, but the word of the living God, which we can trust. Our shared commitment to proclaiming the gospel enables us to overcome proselytism and competition in all their forms. All of us are at the service of one gospel. But friends, that one gospel is not the gospel in the Bible. It is a different gospel, a gospel that comes straight from the Garden of Eden, from the serpent of old. And so here's the point, friends. Protestants are no longer protesting. We are Protestants, not evangelicals. And the definition of a Protestant is that we protest against error and we boldly proclaim the truth. And when we do it, we do it with a spirit of humility and love, but also a spirit of boldness. Amen? And so we see that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are all indelibly united together. What is that? Spiritualism, Catholicism, and apostate Protestantism are already united. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? And friends, what is really uniting them? What is uniting this counterfeit trinity? Here's what really they all have in common. And that is the same thing is coming out of their mouth. Notice with me. In Revelation 16, 13, and 14, it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like what? Frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So the thing that they all have in common is that the same thing is coming out of the mouth. And friends, what comes out of our mouth? Words. In other words, they're teaching the same thing. They're teaching the same doctrines. And it says that these three unclean spirits that come out of the mouth are like what? Frogs. And it says they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Now, friends, what does this mean when it says that out of the mouth of the beast, dragon, false prophet, spiritualism, Catholicism, and apostate Protestantism, what does it mean that these frogs are coming out? What does that mean? Well, friends, the only other time the frog is mentioned in the Bible is when it talks about when God brought the plague of frogs upon the Egyptians. <clears throat> now, friends, listen, before I say that, the mouth is an instrument of speech or communication. Isn't that right? And so what comes out of their mouth are the tantalizing teachings of seducing spirits likened unto frogs. And what do frogs catch their prey with? Their tongues. Where does the imagery of the frogs come from? The only time the frog is mentioned in the Bible is, connect, in, is in connection when God brought the plagues of frogs upon Egypt. You can read that in Exodus chapter 8. Write that down, Exodus chapter 8. And friends, what happened was this. When God brought the plague of frogs, the Egyptian musicians produced counterfeit frogs. And by doing so, it was a false miracle that made Pharaoh rebel against God. Do you remember that story? God brought the plague of frogs. The Egyptian musicians, the spiritualists, produced counterfeit frogs. It represented a false miracle that caused Pharaoh to rebel against God. And friends, listen, in the same way, Satan will use false miracles, frogs, to cause the world to believe in the false teachings 
of the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. And these false teachings will lead to a battle against God himself. Does that make sense? So the frogs coming out of the mouth represents false miracles that cause people to believe in false doctrine that will lead to a fight against God and truth. And friends, is this happening? 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. Notice, signs and lying wonders. Friends, lies come out of your mouth. These are the frogs. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they receive not the what? Love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, friends, listen, miracles that are contrary to the truth would be a lying wonder of Satan. There are true miracles. Don't get me wrong. Amen. God still performs miracles today. He's performed the miracle in my heart. How about yours? So there are true miracles, but there are also counterfeit miracles. And have we seen false miracles producing strong delusions in the world today? False miracles are obvious in paganism. Many pagan religions, Buddhism and Confucianism and Hinduism, uh, they have signs and wonders and miracles, and it's obvious in those religions. But do we see it in many Christian churches today where people claim Christ as Lord? Yes, false miracle workers like Peter Popoff and Benny Him and whatnot, individuals who were, were, were exposed as using hypnotism to call individuals to fall and be slain in the Spirit. In fact, there was a, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a report where... Um, Peter Popoff, I believe it was, was exposed because he had a microphone in his ear and his wife was in the back reading the cards that the people filled in when they entered into the miracle healing service. And in that card, they were asked the names and where the exact seat they were sitting and, and what type of prayer requests or problems they had. And so Peter Popoff, and this was all recorded, he's, he's there on the stage and he's, he's making like he's hearing from God and he said, someone here tonight has some back problems and God's going to heal them. But really, it was his wife telling him that. And then he would go down the aisle, and, 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 and the wife is telling him through the microphone in his ear what seat that person is in. And it would come to the brother, you're the person God told me. You have some back problems, don't you? And you can imagine the guy, he believes he's, that, that, that this, this preacher is hearing from God. It's a terrible thing, friends. Terrible thing. Many people are sincere, but sincerely mistaken because they walk by sight and not by faith in the Word. And friends, that's a tragedy, but I want to show you something that's even more alarming what's been happening. False miracles producing strong delusions, weeping statues. You heard of this before? Apparitions in the sky, uh, forms of the Virgin Mary in toast and pancakes and on trees. And notice how people are responding. Uh, the Virgin Mary, uh, usually when you hear a story on the news about it, it either shows up on a piece of toast or mm -hmm. candy or pancake or whatever it is. This time, there is a statue of the Virgin Mary that some say appears to be crying. This statue is in the back of a shop in Reading, Ohio. Well, where else would it be? Believers and non-believers now have been flocking to the store. What do you think? I believe it's true. 
they were there. I mean, I saw them. They were actually true. It's true. And, and it's more than I would imagine it's a miracle. You actually do hear about this happening uh, a lot, actually. And uh, the owner originally wanted to keep it secret, fearing that the statue would then stop crying if uh, too many people came to check it out themselves. They'll be flocking now. We'll see if the tears keep flowing. Signs and wonders, friends. Bring about, bringing about a strong delusion. And many people who, instead of reading the word, are following the sight of their eyes and the feelings of their senses. And that is a strong warning for us, friends. We need to stay close to the word. Amen. The devil can manipulate our feelings and emotions. He can cause statues to weep. And so we must trust in the word of God, not a subjective personal experience, but the objective word of God. Every experience must be tested by the word. The word is not tested by an experience. The experience is tested by the word. Can you say amen? And so we see, friends, this unity between the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they're already united. Miracles being performed, uniting them strongly together in, in a strong delusion. Well, many people wonder, well, well, how will atheists and secularists be convinced to join this final worldwide false religious movement? Well, how are the atheists going to be convinced? Because, friends, what do the atheists say? I won't believe it until I see it. And, boy, they're going to see some signs and wonders. When they see fire fall from heaven, when they see people getting miraculously healed, they're not going to be able to deny the sight of their eyes. So, so all Satan has to do to get the secularists and atheists is perform some signs and wonders and miracles. And that's how the secularists and atheists are going to jump on board this false religious movement. Well, what about the different religions of the world? How are all of the different religions going to unite together? Well, friends, it's very simple. Do you realize that every major religion is waiting for their Messiah? And here's what Satan does. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of what? The devil has the power to transform as an angel of light. And all he has to do is appear to each different religion and appear as their Messiah. You see, friends, the, 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 the Muslims are waiting for the Imam Mahdi from the line of Muhammad. All Satan has to do is appear and say, here I am, perform some signs and wonders and miracles and say, hey, we need to join this, this massive movement. That's all he has to do. Buddhists are waiting for the, the coming of the next Maitreya. Hindus are waiting for the coming of, of Kalkin. Jews are still waiting for the coming of Messiah. And Christians are waiting for the coming of Jesus. And so do you see how it's going to play out? The devil will come impersonating Christ, impersonating the Messiah, impersonating all the, 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 the leaders of the false religions, and the lying wonders of Satan will bring these religions together. And then notice what, they, what happens next. It says that they go to the kings of the earth and then of the whole world. Kings of the earth first, why? For political power to enforce the teachings. Then they can go to the whole world 
to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And then notice, prophecy tells us, verse, uh, excuse me, 17, 13, these all have one mind, and they shall give their power and strength to who? Who's going to be the leader of it? Why the beast? Why the papacy? Is because the papacy will have the most miracle-working power of Satan because the papacy has always been loyal to the dragon from the very beginning of time. So these religions will come together. They're going to have one mind, and they're going to lend their power to this leader, the beast. And then notice, what is the main agenda of the beast? To enforce their mark, of course. And friends, what is the mark of the beast? We studied this before, Sunday worship. So they're going to lend their influence to the beast. What does the beast want? To enforce the mark of the beast in the form of a national and international Sunday law. And it's going to happen, friends. Now there's the power. And so thus will be fulfilled the words, the deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. And those who refuse to go along will be persecuted. But friends, we don't have to be afraid because the kings of the east are about to come. Amen? The kings of the east are right around the corner. Jesus and the Holy Spirit will come to set God's people free from spiritual Babylon and bring us to the new Jerusalem. So don't be afraid, friends. Don't be afraid. It's important for us to understand these things so that we can avoid deception. But fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The book, Great Controversy, written over 100 years ago, comments on this, and it's like you're reading the newspaper. Notice what the prophet said on page 588. The line of distinction between professed Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them, and Satan determines to do what? Unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of what? spiritualism that's the dragon papist that's the beast papist who boast of miracles as a certain sign of the true church they say they're the true church will be readily deceived by this wonder working power and who protestants having cast away the shield of truth those are apostate protestants the false prophet will also be deluded papist protestants and worldlings will like accept the form of godliness without the power and they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long expected millennium and friends that's happening today but is god going to have a people that will stand firm will god have a faithful remnant in the last days do they need to be afraid why? Because as the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of God, the true experience, the true Holy Spirit, will lift up a standard against them. And here's the promise, friends. We're almost finished. Isaiah 40, uh, 54, verse 17. Let's read this together, shall we? Oh, this is so beautiful. It says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, says the Lord. No weapon formed against us will prosper. God will take care of his own. And friends, what is the protection? It is the, is the, it's the armor of God, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the armor of light, friends. And as this worldwide movement of apostasy 
is coming together in the midst of this for the days the days are going to be shortened for the sake of the elect the bible says and as the wicked prepare for the final battle against God's people, God will foil their plan with the seventh plague. And he's going to say, it is done. The battle will be finished for a time as the kings of the east return to uh, set God's people free from spiritual Babylon as we enter into the new Jerusalem. And we're going to go there for 1,000 years. And God, during that time, will give us an opportunity to audit the judgment he wants all of our questions to be answered before the battle is finally finished. Before he eradicates evil once and for all, he's going to give us an opportunity to have all our questions answered. And then at the end of the thousand years, and by the way, during the thousand years, God gives Satan time to stop and think about what he's done in this controversy. Then after a 1,000-year prison sentence, after every question is answered in the minds of, of the saints, the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes back down from heaven to earth. Now the Lord comes to finish the battle of Armageddon. His character has been vindicated before the universe, and now it's time to settle the controversy for all eternity. And as the city of God descends, the second resurrection takes place in Revelation 20, verse 7 and 9. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. He is still unrepented and unchanged, even after having a thousand years to think about his crimes. He's still up to his work of deceiving the nations, which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, who, uh, the number of whom is as the what? Sand of the sea. This is the climax of the battle of Armageddon, friends. It happens at the end of the thousand years. Now it turns somewhat literal as Satan and all the wicked like the sand of the sea. They look at the city of God and they now try to take by force that which God once offered to them in love. It says they went on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And here's the final, the conclusion of the battle of Armageddon. The final push of Satan to ascend above the heights of the clouds. His final desperate attempt to be like the Most High. His last try to sit on the mount of the congregation, that's the word Armageddon, in the size of the north. This is the climax of the battle that began in his heart. And friends, the good news is this. It says in 1714, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. The Lord wins the battle of Armageddon, and because He wins, we win too. As long as we're with Him, friends, how many of you want to be with Him? The Lord is going to win. And what's going to happen next? Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, The dragon is powerless over the Lamb. Armageddon is now settled, and God can now end the war. He can now eradicate evil once and for all because every false accusation has been proven a lie. And then it says, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the what? Beast and the false prophet are. And then in Ezekiel 28, 18 and 19, 
it says that from the very source of the controversy, God is going to finish it. And what was the source? The heart of Lucifer. God says, I will bring forth a fire from the where? The midst of thee. Why? Because that's, Lucifer said in his heart, I will be God. He said it in his heart. And so from the midst of him, a fire will come. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And never shalt thou be any more. The controversy begins and ends. In Lucifer's heart, God eradicates evil at the very source. And from the ashes of the old world, then God, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. God recreates this world back into its Edenic original perfection, and we will inherit the earth and be keepers of the garden. We will study no war no more because it is done, it is finished, and God's people will breathe an eternal sigh of relief. And the Bible says that affliction will not rise up the second time. Amen? It is done. It is finished. But since it's not yet done now, what should we be doing? We close. As Satan is gathering the world in deception and wickedness, what should we be doing? We should be gathering together in truth and righteousness. And that's what Jesus is seeking to do. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must Another word for bring is gather, and they will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. True unity based upon the Spirit and upon the truth. Tonight, God is calling his people to come out of Babylon and to let Babylon come out of us and to go into spiritual Jerusalem, which is God's remnant church, the city of truth. This is what we should pray for and do corporately. Do how? Corporately as a church, we need to be coming together in unity, in spirit, and in truth, putting aside not, our, not the truth, but putting aside our sins, our grudges, our unforgiving spirit, the wrongs committed against one another. That's what God wants us to do corporately. But what does God call us to do individually? Friends, you'll find something amazing in Revelation 16 in the midst of this plague. As all the world turns against God's people, Jesus interjects a life-preserving message for his people. Did you notice it? Remember we read the sixth plague, the battle of Armageddon? Jesus abruptly interjects something right there in the sixth plague. And here's a message that will save our souls. Revelation 16, 15, my last verse. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Friends, as the whole world will turn against God's truth and God's people and all the false religions uniting with the political powers of the world to destroy the truth and God's people, Christ calls us to do two things in this passage. Number one, watch. What is that? As you look at the beast, don't lose sight of the lamb. Watch, and then number two, keep your garments. What do those garments represent? 
the righteousness of Christ. Keep your garments. Hold on to his righteousness by faith. And as we do those two things, we have nothing to fear in the battle of Armageddon. Amen? And the reason why we can keep our garments and not be naked, do you know why? Is because Jesus on the cross gave his garments and he died naked. And because what he did for us on the cross, we can keep our garments and not be naked. Are you thankful for Jesus? Do you understand what you've heard tonight? How many of you want to be on the winning team? If so, stand with me as we pray. Christ's righteousness is the armor that will keep us in the battle. His word is the sword that helps us to fight on. And so let's go in the name of the Lord. Thank you so much, dear God, for speaking to us through this message. Very solemn message. Lord, we see this prophecy being fulfilled all around us. And we're living in a religious crisis, Lord. And Father, we know that you have your people all over the world, in every church, in every fold, even a part of these movements that your word identifies as the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Father, help us to remember that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that all our righteousness are like filthy rags, and that as we give the message, we should never be proud or look down upon people because many of those individuals will be in your kingdom because of their sincerity. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to give the message more than just give the message. May we be the message. May the message of the gospel, the true gospel, be reflected in our lives. And we pray that as the waters of Babylon dry up, that the kings of the east will come to take us home. May we all be ready for that day. Lord, help us to watch, not go to sleep. And help us to keep our garments, your garments, and not walk around naked in our own self-righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. It makes it possible. And it's in his name we pray. Let everyone say, Amen. 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 You may be seated.